0: We aim to prevent people from using charcoal because actually people use charcoal because they have no other alternative. Gas is super expensive. Like to have a bottle of gas, you need to pay 37 euros. How do you do when you earn 45? It's not possible. Uh, Electricity, we have only 30% of households that have access to electricity in Benin. So the only thing left is biomass.
1: Welcome to Urban Limitroph, a Toronto-based podcast exploring the global African experience by highlighting the various initiatives happening in cities across the African continent and occasionally the diaspora to creatively solve problems, support communities, create vibrant urban initiatives, and build better cities overall. I'm your host, Alexandra, and join me as I explore this episode's topic. Urban Waste Management. Yes, in this episode, we're talking about waste, and we'll explore a bit about where it goes, where it comes from, who picks it up, and those who are harvesting its potential to not only create green jobs, but to create sustainable solutions to complex problems like a lack of electricity. Good waste management is one of those things we take for granted. And so you only really notice it when something goes horribly wrong, or if it is blatantly non-existent. Think about it. It only takes one clock toilet to ruin your day or when you're driving through an area with overflowing garbage, your first thought is probably, goodness, what a dump. Well, as you may know, for some people, in some places, overflowing garbage bins and clogged toilets are the least of their worries. Some people actually do live near dump sites and have no plumbing at all, which creates a number of health and sanitary issues that put the lives of many at risk. So much like the effects of climate change, the impacts of waste on a community are not only unequally spread within cities, but across cities and countries and continents, often creating a vicious cycle of waste that begins and ends with the same people getting the short end of the stick. Let's take, for example, the life cycle of electronic waste, or e-waste, which is essentially broken electronic devices like TVs, smartphones, computers, DVD players, and more. Now let's just focus on one component, copper. Our journey begins in the Central African Copper Belt, which is composed of Zambia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. While the Central African Copper Belt is the world's second largest producer of copper cathodes, it is the world's first producer of cobalt. Copper and cobalt are two elements that are critical to making our electronics work. These minerals are extracted through mining processes that leave behind toxic wastes that pollute the environment and the local population long after the materials are shipped off. But back to the copper cathodes. But let's get back to the copper cathodes. Copper cathodes are essential to all electrical components. They go on our computers, smartphones, smartphone cables, the earphones you're probably listening to this podcast on, the microphone I recorded this on, video game consoles, and so many of the products that the rest of the world enjoys. But what about when these devices break? Or when we get tired of them and upgrade to the latest model? Well, it turns out that they get shipped right back to Africa. In fact, the world's largest e-waste dump is in Africa. It's actually just a hop, skip, and a jump from the Copper Belt countries to Ghana, where workers fall ill reclaiming the electronic pieces And what they can't reclaim remains in large piles where the copper and other electronic components release toxic substances into the air and seep into the ground, making both people and earth sick. Meanwhile, less than 50% of sub-Saharan Africa has access to electricity. And for regions that do, often the electricity is not reliable, leaving many to rely on burning charcoal, or using gas in order to go about their daily activities like cooking and lighting up their homes when it gets dark. This once again negatively impacts both their health and the environment as the wood that's chopped down to create the charcoal actually leads to deforestation in the area. Thankfully, behind every dark cloud there is a silver lining, which comes in the form of an organization based out of Porto Novo in Benin called Bebeto which is working on several projects to not only keep the city clean, but improve the lives of its citizens and local waste reclaimers, one recycling depot at a time. I spoke with Naomi, the founder of Bebeto, to learn more about her work and how the nonprofit is turning trash into treasure. And by treasure, I mean fuel briquettes made from biodegradable waste that provides locals with a healthier, eco-friendly alternative to charcoal. Let's tune in.
0: Okay, Bobero is a French NGO originally that opened like uh, an antenna in Benin and basically we work towards transforming waste into a resource for Porto Novo and the surrounding. Porto Novo is the capital city of Benin. Um, basically we think that waste is something that is kind of a huge problem in cities, uh, especially in developing cities where like networks to collect them and manage them are really not developed at all. And it's a problem that can be turned into a solution if you find the proper ways to collect, transform it into something that can be of some value to the people. That's what we do. And that's why we started uh, the
1: organization. Okay. And you actually mentioned um, that, you know, Babetto meant something to the the local community, what is, what is that meaning and what does that mean to, to those in Benin?
0: Bobetta means waste picker. actually. It refers to a range of people that live from waste collection. And uh, actually, they also sell, you know, the little items they can find to like other companies. And so they are really valuable because so far they've been the only people to actually do something about waste but they're also like kind of excluded from society because, you know, nobody likes waste. And so they live from waste. So there's a bad image to it. And I wanted to like, yeah, you know, to give them credit for what they do. And actually, as I work also with people who don't always speak French, uh, it's a way also so that they can grab what we do, like just in a single word, they know, oh, okay, you, you deal with waste. we are like, yes,
1: we do. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, um, the, the project that initially caught my eye about your organization is the Green Energy Project or the Projet Energie Verte that you're working on, which seeks to address an unmet energy needs in the community in a more sustainable way. So, can you explain a bit more about this project and what inspired you to start this?
0: Okay. So, as I said before, like we think that waste can be turned, turned into a resource to do many things. and. Um, what we noticed is like when we look at the way people in Benin spend their wages or their, their income, we noticed that energy was an important cost to them. Uh, you should note that basically people in Benin earn like on average uh, 45 euros a month. So that's, you know, not a lot. And energy is like it could be maybe nine to 10 euros a month. So that's a huge cost for them. And we noticed that apart from this social burden, there's also a, a, an environmental burden because people actually, like 95% of people, they cook with charcoal or wood. So deforestation is a huge problem in Benin. And at the same time, you have so many agro-residues that were not used because like Porto Novo, for instance, is located next to the Valley de l'Ouémé, the Weme Valley that is like the second most fertile valley in the world after the Nile Valley. So we have so many agro-residues that just brought there. (laughs) Nobody does anything with them. And so we thought, ah, so we have the deforestation issue. We have like the need for energy and we have residues. So let's turn residues into energy. And basically the project started in September, 2019. Um, with a really uh, richer research and development phases in which we we involved 200 uh, very um, disadvantaged households. And basically we started like trying different recipes with those residues. Uh, So far we have tried 36 different recipes (laughs) (laughs) and it actually works well now. And basically those households that were involved in uh, just giving their opinion, you know, we were giving them like the fuel briquettes uh, to them and they would tell us, oh, there's too much fumes or, oh, this is good or this goes fast, etc. And we improved the, the recipe. And now we are at a point where in which basically the recipe works, households are happy about it. And now we need to like, set up a proper um, production unit that is going to be sustainable. Because the whole point is that we need to sell them at a cost that will be sustainable for the people. We need to produce it in large quantities. And so basically we're scaling up right now from a production of 400 briquettes a day to a production of 4,000 briquettes a day by wow. the end of 2021 so that's our goal <laughs> and so we hope to get there soon <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: it's <that's> fast approaching
0: <laughs> yeah it is it is but we are on track you know like we have the machine that we will use to do that is nearly built uh, actually there is a volunteer engineer that came from france to do that for us um, we have the support of uh, the European Union in this process too, so that helps a lot. And actually, like um, lately, the project has drawn a lot of attention, you know, in France, in uh, Germany, etc. So we get a lot of support to grow faster and meet
1: our goal. So how was the process of creating these fuel briquettes? Like, how was the waste collected? You know, how was it turned? I know you mentioned the machine, and then. You mentioned a particular kind of waste that you you need to make these briquettes. So can you just walk us through that process?
0: Yeah, exactly. So basically, we've been building partnerships with local farmers, uh, showing them that basically they produce naturally waste that they don't know how to use. And so we taught them how to prepare them properly so that they could be used in our process. And so currently, like with our small scale production, farmers they earn like quite a lot actually like over a hundred euros a month with us so this could be multiplied by 10 that's that's a lot of money you know so we're happy about that and um, when it comes to our place uh, the material is prepared like into the a recipe it's actually you measure the different you know uh, ingredients into proportions you mix it with water so that you have kind of a like a pea soup, you know, <laughs> and then you, you press it like uh, with a high, middle to high pressure. It's actually the pressure that uh, when the briquette actually gets uh, you know the the dry when the briquette gets dry, it sticks together. And actually, we we created a shape uh, which is actually a cylinder with a a hole inside, so that there is a chimney effect when you burn it, the flame goes in the middle. And so there is the air also passes and it burns better. And so um, the whole process is very simple. You know, we, we believe in low tech. So basically it's, you know, mixing your, your uh, ingredients, uh, pressing them, drying them, and then your briquette is ready. So really
1: easy. <laughs> I was thinking if you can explain why developing like green energy or green ways to produce this kind of like combustible, these like steel briquettes is important for the communities that use it. Mm-hmm.
0: So basically, what is bad is to burn biomass that is not renewable. In our case, we burn uh, residues that are produced all over again. You know, by farmers, they they will be produced anyway. So it's a clever way to use them rather than just leave them in the fields doing nothing. And we prevent people, like we we aim to prevent people from using charcoal because actually people use charcoal because they have no other alternative. Gas is super expensive. Like to have a bottle of gas, you need to pay 37 euros. How do you do when you earn 45? It's not possible. Uh, electricity, we have only 30% of households that have access to electricity in Benin. So the only thing left is biomass. So either you have like the unsustainable biomass, which is wood, either you use something that you grow and then we grow, grow, grow again to make something. So you can actually have a positive impact on the environment. You can provide jobs because we are creating like these huge value chains with farmer, with local people that will distribute our briquettes. And we give access to affordable energy because uh, the idea is to sell it like 20 to 40% uh, less than charcoal. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, it's really interesting because actually um, two summers or I think like three summers ago now, (laughs) I went to, um, my family's from Lumbumbashi. So in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and there's like, I have to call it like kind of like a phenomenon that happens. We call it like de where essentially the energy in certain neighborhoods in the city is like purposely cut off. And that's very, very annoying. And so yeah, so there's some days you have energy, and then there's other days where um you actually have to like burn something in order to to um to like cook in order to like see in the dark and all these different things. Yeah. So yeah, I think in at the time when I was there, we didn't have sort of like an eco-alternative to what you know what you guys are, are producing now. It was like coal or it was wood, and I always felt bad about it. But then, at the point where you're at, there's no energy. There's nothing you can do. Like you literally, don't have a choice. And it's like the mm. least expensive option. So I think that mm. this, this, and like other um, type of materials that I've seen is really, really important.
0: Exactly. That's why also pricing is an important aspect of what we do. Uh, we still, uh, we're still doing tests. You know, with households, and we compare how many briquettes they use to cook to uh, charcoal. So I don't know, and that's uh, how we can price them, you know? Like if they were going to use 100 uh, francs of charcoal, we know that for the same amount of briquette, is, it needs to be less or the same amount. Otherwise they, they won't use it, We yeah. know that,
1: yeah. So that means from the, the household you've been working with, have you seen that um, like the, as the community is really like open to having these more like eco-alternatives or there, is there like kind of like a trend you're seeing where people are asking more and more for this type of um, product?
0: I think the, the ecological part is not the main problem because obviously when, when you pour poor, like that's not like what matters. So we try to show them the advantage of it like some people this in spite of like you have the price that is uh less important but you will see other uh, you have also other um good aspects about it for instance um there is less fume when people use charcoal they're like oh my eyes are burning i have troubles i have troubles breathing it's it's like with our briquettes, there is fume, but much less than with charcoal um also it's um it burns like the temperature rises uh faster than charcoal oh, and they're cool. like because they're like oh that's cool like i don't have to wait like i don't know 20 minutes before i can do something with it so we try to show them like the good aspects of it and our policy is that by using them they will protect the environment without even knowing but that's not the point because they, they do it that's that's what is important you know to them to us to them etc
1: Okay, so I want to uh, turn our attention to like another project you're working on I know you do so many but this was another one that I thought was really interesting right I know you're working with a, a, a government branch to create um, like these recycling stations or recycling depots that you call the recyclerie. Mm-hmm. And so I find this project interesting because, you know, in creating these stations, it's not just a matter of improving the health of the city or the community, but it's also the citizens. And as you mentioned, working, as you said, Bebeto means like the waste picker. So it's about supporting and formalizing and also valorizing the work that these people have already been doing. So, can you explain more about this, uh, about this particular project?
0: Yeah. So basically uh, there is a very positive reform undergoing like uh, in Benin. Uh, before we didn't have like a centralized waste collection system. You could like pay someone to collect your waste or you couldn't, you could do whatever you want. Now the governments like in the cities of the South of Benin, they say, stop. Now it's going to be compulsory. And we're going to have like dedicated companies that they selected through a call of debt for tenders. Um, that are going to be like in charge of this. So basically every like, uh, household gets the, the service the waste collection service. But the problem that it created is that uh, before that things were organized, like waste was like dumped like illegally anywhere. but you had those informal workers that at least would pick them, sell them and do something with it when the reform was actually set up, those people, they lost their, like, their, their income oh. because the, the government kind of <laughs> forgot. I don't know if it was willing or not, but they were not included. So we were working with them before because actually we set up like a small recycling unit where we used to buy plastic from those people, like at, the, at a decent price. So we went to see the government and we told them, basically, uh, well, like uh, having uh, a better collection system, that's great, so we get like, like cities are cleaner and more waste is collected than before. But in the system you have put in place, basically you, you, you send all of what you've collected to dump sites because nobody's sorting. The, 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 those people that were sorting before so let's try. Like we will start like very like in a low-tech process with uh, little equipment, et etc. But let's try to include them on those sites you are organizing, so that they actually sort the waste and continue to do what they were doing, but in decent conditions. So the idea is that we will formalize them, organize them. I don't know in a small cooperative or association we will provide them with training in management in like accounting things like that in a, with a technical training also to teach them how to do their job sa- safely just not like pick waste without gloves or you know because that's what they were used to doing so we need to teach them about that and we will like support them until they are autonomous they can run their little company that's a waste sorting company alone and that's the point. And I, I, I really, like, I'm very excited about this project because nothing of the sort has been done in Benin before. And I really think uh, it's actually something that could give, provide jobs to, like, the poorest people while actually having a huge, like, environmental impact. So it's a, it's a real challenge. Actually, it's not been launched Um we are still preparing it like but the the speaker they are excited about it they're only waiting for us to start we have been conducting interviews for the people who will accompany them and we hope to start maybe this summer like
1: if everything goes
0: well (laughs) so that's the plan
1: yeah yeah i think yeah that's so interesting and i really like how you're able to pull in this community that was already doing this work and kind of bring them back into this process when they were kind of kicked out of it the, the, the formalization that, that had occurred prior. So it's really a great way to keep them involved in, in what they were doing. And so in, so yeah, you're still setting up the different stations. Okay, so how are you deciding where these will be like placed without, throughout the city?
0: So we don't decide actually, because we want to combine them with the, like the formal collection system. So in the system, Basically, the, the government is transforming uh, like old illegal dump sites into proper uh, dumping sites, like organized and everything. And so the idea we want is to include the recyclery inside those sites because the, the waste is going to go there anyway. So they need to be there to get it, sort it, etc. Yeah. So at first we'll be limited by this by the space because most of those dumb sites, they they were, they are around, you know, houses, like they were not actually designed uh, to be there. But the idea is that first we need to make kind of a proof of concept. And if it works, they already told us that they would consider extended the program to other sites that would be bigger and would be more like uh, proper to install like a, a real, you know, Chain with workers and very like uh, you do that you sort you put into bags you wait, you etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, that's like the first thing is to prove that it can work, and it's a challenge because there are like a lot of uh, stakeholders. Like you have the waste collection companies that are going to be like okay, but if you give the waste to those way speakers. So it means that our loads will weigh less. So we will be paid less. So the government has to tell them that no, they won't be paid less. So we need to like reinsure them that it's not going to be the case. The way speaker, like they have no education. So we will need to actually <laughs> really be with them to tell them this has to work this way. You can't do whatever you want, when you want, if you want it to work. So we have a lot of challenges, but we'll
1: work on them. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you will. <laughs> so you actually answered my my next question, which was regarding the challenges. So let's we'll jump to the next one. <laughs> so okay. what has been some of the like um, uh, what have been some of the highlights or like surprises that have come in in terms of trying to implement this project?
0: Surprises, I would not say sup- well, positive surprise that the government was actually responsive to what we suggested. I mean. That's weird, like in many African countries, we're handicapped by the fact that you can have a great idea, but the government is so corrupt that they won't even listen to you. Like we were so lucky to actually arrive at the time of change with a a government which has a real program about waste and who's willing to listen to people with ideas. So we've been so lucky so far, We we have actually designed the program together like I have regular meetings with the like the head of this government agency, and so that was a very positive surprise. Um, the less like the bad surprises, like more or less, is that um, I-, I noticed that in this uh, branch of government they have kind of um, how can I say they have an idea about how to do things that for me might not be acceptable according to international standards like for instance you can't have people sorting waste into a ban out you know how to say that in English you know the big collectors where you put waste
1: like yeah that
0: go on a truck yes
1: yes the dumpster
0: but when we started to think about the project they were like okay so do you want the people actually to sort waste inside and mm-hmm. I was like no I mean no <laughs> that's not like they're going, it's unsafe. It's unclean in, no, no, we can't do that. So, so we feel like sometimes, uh, even in this government branch that is supposed to be in charge of waste management, we lack the um, technical expertise that we would need. That's why we have been actually contacting a lot of NGOs in other countries to be like, Hey, (laughs) how did you do that? (laughs) Because, (laughs) because yeah, it's, um, the lack of good like proper human resources is a it's a real challenge in benin like you you can have engineers but then you will see that the way they do things is not the way they should so that's the challenge we've been experiencing in all of our projects actually so yeah that's
1: understandable and Yeah, I'm sure it'll take some time to kind of work out those kinks, but I'm I'm sure you're on your way (laughs) to to being able to achieve that. We
0: are, we are, like, you know, (laughs) very motivated and super happy to do that. But yeah, it's challenging.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so I wonder, um, so what what would happen with the materials after they're collected? I know there's companies that, like, buy these materials and they use them for other projects or, yeah, just what happens afterwards?
0: Yeah, basically the idea is to support those waste pickers in finding buyers for the waste. So there is a, a part that we can buy because we have our own recycling units, but for paper, for instance, for metals, we will help them find uh, buyers. There are some already, but they were not necessarily working with those waste speakers because they would use like intermediaries, for instance, or they would u- they would use more reliable people so maybe those waste picker they would be able to have better like earnings because they would be like working, you know, as a single entity providing larger quantities to those companies to recycle. So that would be, I think it would be positive. But we, we plan to basically, once the project is launched to do a lot of communication, maybe some videos about Westpeaker, speaker, just, you know, to give them some publicity and help them find uh, buyers.
1: Yeah, I've read that actually that um, that's like a, an issue that some of the companies that are buying waste in certain African countries are addressing where they, you have like waste everywhere, but there's not someone who's actually like grouping them together and like sending them in, in quantities that are sufficient for them to do yeah, what they want exactly. to do. So yeah, so this is a great, yeah, a great way yeah. to like bridge those two, yeah, two that's worlds what together.
0: we have been doing with our plastic unit. Actually, mm-hmm. we have like been buying, as I told you from waste pickers, and actually, like we sent our first load of thirty-five tons to Ghana, like a few weeks ago. So that's also what what you were saying. Like there is a gap, a funding gap. Like you you are an informal way speaker. You can't wait months before you have thirty-five tons. You need to be paid before. So when we we settled in in Benin, we actually like uh, uh, closed the gap about that. Like in in Porto Novo. Uh, and also we were able to pay them more because we actually transform it locally into flakes that then can be sold. We don't like just export raw plastic with no added
1: value, etc. And so just jumping on that thread of things that you're talking about, and yeah, you've mentioned it before that you're trying to turn waste into like a resource and you've through the different projects we've discussed and the other ones that you're working on you've done this you've turned into a resource in like more than one way like through green energy you know decreasing pollution and ultimately improving health but also you know creating sustainable employment through for these waste pickers and i guess the other people also involved in the different projects so i wonder um Um, Like what is the demographic or like kind of background of people who are employing for your various initiatives? Are they like all waste pickers or are you also like looking for, let's say, other people like just out of school who are working on these different like initiatives? Basically, we
0: have a unit, uh, like we call it the pilot unit, because we hope one day to have like a proper recycling center. And I've been employing people from the community. who were like very disadvantaged. So I have people who couldn't find a job for years. I have people who have a handicap. I have women, especially women to find a job, it's hard. Um, Mostly young people, but I also have like a grandpa that (laughs) did a job and that just came to work with me. So we have like the direct job we create, like for those people. And then all the indirect uh, opportunities with like the way speakers, Household that we hope to like franchise to distribute the briquettes, um, farmers who provide like uh, agro residues, etc. So basically, like they are all uh, like disadvantaged people, as I told you, like most earn less than 45 euros a month. 45 euros actually seems a lot, like I would say that most don't earn more than 20 euros a month. So basically those that work directly with us, they have the minimum wage, which is like uh, 60 euros a month and for for like the basic worker, but then if you are qualified, you you get more, obviously.
1: Um,
0: And basically there are people who, most of them, like they didn't even speak French. They still don't. So sometimes, uh, you know, I have to, uh have a translator to speak to my own team Uh, but but it's okay um and uh yeah basically that's people the people we have been working with
1: yeah and so i know you mentioned that uh at the beginning that through the different opportunities different employment opportunities it's managed to kind of like build the capacity of some of these employees and they've like gone on to do other things. So just, yeah, wondering how, how are these various the opportunities uh, for employment? Yeah, like what, what are they up to now? How have how how the different programs that they've worked with you with, how has that helped them to like improve their lives um, further down the road, I suppose?
0: Okay, so like for my employees, the idea is actually to keep them and to like make them climb the ladder. So for instance, like she came as just a a worker and you know, she dropped out of school when she was 14 or something. She is a a mother of four, Uh, her her husband doesn't have a job so it was very complicated for her. And she came in just as a worker and she was so like dedicated to the job. So, you know, willing to learn that now she's actually managing the production, the bricket production and she has learned how to use a computer like she didn't know a few months ago. She's (laughs) she's able to use Excel spreadsheets to send me data about what she's been doing. So Mm -hmm. it's great. So so yeah, my my idea is that we can, if we find people that are willing to work, we can actually like just help them climb the social ladder and improve their, their living conditions. But it's really hard. Because um, I had when I came to Benin, I had to like teach them about my work culture, while also understanding that their work culture was different. But f- for instance, in Benin, in my experience, people consider that they are working as soon as they enter your premises, but it's not. Working. I mean, if you're just sitting on a chair of not being efficient, it's not what I expect from you. So I had to teach them by, I I pay you like for an objective, to meet an objective. If you don't, I don't have like value for money. (laughs) You know, it has been a long way to like, even like to give them responsibility, to tell them if the project fails, it's going to be because of you. If the project succeeds, and you keep a job like for 10, 20 years, it's because of you. At the beginning, they didn't see that. They didn't see that their individual actions, they had an impact. So it was very long, like in, it took a year approximately. I was exhausted because I was just giving so much into the project and I had people that couldn't understand a thing about it. Mm But now it's been much better, like for instance, actually, I'm currently in France, just taking a holiday, they're in Benin, and still working, nobody has blown up the site, you know, so, <laughs> so it's fine. But you have to be resilient, really, really resilient. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, yeah, that's understandable, something also I've noticed yeah, from my own travels. Yeah, there is that kind of like culture that you kind of have to work with and that can be kind of really frustrating at times. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, definitely resilience is, some, is something that you'll need and that you've shown that, <laughs> that if you're able to work through, it can have some fruitful impacts and really uh, benefit the community. Like you're saying, I really, mm. I really find that that particular focus on employment is important because I feel like some of the projects I've seen or some opportunities I see, and they kind of forget about that aspect where like as Mm -hmm. much as you want to help the population, you also need to give them the tools to help themselves. And I think what you're doing is really a part of doing that, like sort of like that, you know, if you teach a man to fish kind of thing, then they can like eat forever versus you just like giving them fishes, giving like like, handouts in in that particular way. This is more fruitful and can help not just this one person, but the community overall. So that's great. Now my
0: idea is to have like a real recycling center that is operated by a 100% local team, uh, because I'm not totally local, you know, like I have the Beninese nationality, but I was raised uh, in France, like I think like a European, so it's not the same. (laughs) Yeah. So so the idea is that it's going to take years, it's going to take maybe 15 years, but one day I just want to find someone that's competent, that is dedicated, and. Give him like Bobetto, tell him, okay, now you go on with that. (laughs) You see? It's yours. (laughs) The point is that if it needs to be like, they need to really see the project as their own. Like, okay, it was initiated by me, but it's for the people there in Benin. And, and, and And they need to stop thinking that because it was initiated by a white person, there's always money from, you know, the Western world that is going to come into the project. No, it's going to be, it needs to be self-sustainable.
1: Yes, that's very important. Mm -hmm. So I think waste infrastructure or like recycling infrastructure is often overlooked. You know, when it's there and it's working, but and it's very par- apparent when it's not, you know, and then I think that's almost something that like we, quote unquote, we in like higher income countries or like cities like Toronto where I am or Paris where you are right now, you know, we can kind of take that for granted as they've already been established. And you already mentioned before a number of challenges that had to do, and also another a number of um like partnerships that have allowed you to kind of like advance this uh, project faster than say, they would if the government or um, certain partnerships were already in place. So I'm wondering what kind of support, whether it be like policies, other partnerships, or just other programs that you think that cities should offer companies like yourself to help like establish and or expand these like rice recycling programs or initiatives.
0: Mm-hmm. For me, we will always be limited in our ability to actually uh, Collect and like recycle waste by the fact that there is no uh, like um, sorting inside households. Like at the moment, everything is collected, like no matter if it's plastic, organic waste, paper, and put together and brought to the like the, the centers, the, the small recycleries, uh, where it's sorted. But it's not enough. I mean. It makes the, the task a lot harder for waste pickers, uh, for everyone. So, but setting up a proper uh, like a waste sorting program inside a household is very costly. Uh, you need to provide them with the different bins when you need to teach them. I don't think it's something that a small organization like us can do. So we could team up. We could actually think about ways to convince people to do it, but we will do it alone so so i know that the government has a plan to do that starting maybe next year or the year afterwards uh and it's positive but really like for me like not only benin but in other african countries if you don't have uh, a government will to actually change the way waste is collected and managed you can't do it as a company like you will be
1: limited yeah i I think that's that's pretty interesting because i I find that even here, kind of teaching there's a. I mean, we may have the bins that we need in order to um, kind of self-sort at at home, but we're always constantly being reminded. Like we get um, like calendars from like the city of Toronto that are like, "This is what you can recycle. Like, don't put your pizza you know, like crust in the recycling bin because <laughs> that doesn't make any yeah. sense." But yeah, it's constant kind of like reminder yeah. even afterwards. So and it's do you imagine
0: processes. like the cost of that? Yeah, yeah. you're in a country, Canada or even in France, that is pretty rich, you can can, like allocate resources for that. In a country like Benin where most people don't pay taxes, like the government doesn't have that much money to put into waste. So collection is already expensive. Then if you have to like uh, implement awareness raising program, imagine the cost of that. Even to just to equip every household with uh, trash cans, it's going to be hard. And who says that the trash cans are going to be used properly by people? They might sell them again, you know, for yeah. money.
1: Yeah. So,
0: so, so, no, there are a lot of challenges. That's why our policy is to start with low tech options and see how we can build on that. Like first, does it work? And then how we can build on that to improve and to like deepen what we do. Well, don't stop like, with like millions of euros of investment and then just realize that it doesn't work well no, that's not
1: the point yeah yeah i think it's i think it's like anywhere really it's a matter of kind of changing the minds of people and kind of getting them accustomed and then that kind of helps like you said making sure that people feel that the project is their own and that that sense of um it's like ownership really helps to make any project thrive yeah Okay, so my last question, um, so as you're you know, a non-profit organization, so how can people get involved with the expansion of, of your work?
0: Uh, basically, as I was telling you, I have a lot of trouble finding good human resources, like p- skilled people that are willing to help. Uh, anytime we have had people from France coming like, for extended periods, like five months, six months, it has given a boost to our project. They don't come and work, uh, like replace local people. No, they come and they team up with the local team just to improve their skills. Like it could be things as basic, as basic as just using, you know, Excel spreadsheets that people don't know how to do here, but that's, you know, to see your impact, to do statistics, that's like very valuable. Um, it could be just, Helping people be better organized because you will find here that people they have a lot of trouble with project management. And then we will have like some people come with like more technical skills, for instance, the, the volunteer that is currently building the machine for us. So we have all kinds of profiles that can come uh, to our place. Like we usually like house them and make sure that they are integrated in the team. Like we really like people that come with us then they're part you know of the family we travel together etc and that's one way to help we have also people who just don't want to get involved like giving time but they give like a small donations every day and that helps because actually like I was I was telling you like the minimum wage is 60 euros so even if you give like 20 it's like already the third of the minimum wage that's that's a lot of money to us so there are many ways and we are always we think that we can't go further alone we always need you know to find ideas and just new opportunities with other people from anywhere in the world.
1: Yeah it's a great start and I yeah encourage anyone who's listening <laughs> to reach out <laughs> and keep helping with this really cool really interesting project and I'm excited to see how it grows and how it continues to impact the different community members who are involved. So thank you.
0: Uh, thank you. Uh, the the only problem that we have is that most of the team members they don't speak English, so that's kind of the the thing that can be difficult. Because even if we had volunteers from I don't know in English speaking countries, it would be very difficult for them to integrate because nobody speaks English in Benin. <laughs> so that's that's the uh, the drawback. Yeah. But then, yeah.
1: What initially caught my eye about Bebeto was their fuel briquettes and the ways that they're using waste to not only provide a more sustainable solution for those without reliable electricity access, but also for how their work creates much needed employment and capacity building opportunities for locals. But when speaking to Naomi and learning more about the process of collecting waste and sorting it, I was constantly reminded of how much work goes on behind the scenes and the unsung heroes like Waste Reclaimers, whose efforts keep our cities clean and communities healthy. So, if you're interested like I am about Waste Reclaimers and the work that they do, make sure to stay tuned for a future episode where I speak with Dr. Melanie Sampson. And she explains how beneficial Waste Reclaimers are to cities, the discrimination that they often face, and the work that the African Reclaimers Organization is doing to improve their rights and their safety. Thanks for listening to this episode. To learn more about the great work that Bebeto is doing, please visit www.bebeto.org. For this episode's show notes and other resources, make sure to visit www.urbanlimitrove.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on Instagram to stay up to date and stay tuned for new episodes coming your way every month. Until next time.